Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by the founder of Nextdoor, Nirav Tolia. Graduate of Stanford, Nirav created this application to bring communities and neighborhoods together. This application is used in one of every four U.S. households, 11 countries, and 268,000 neighborhoods globally. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Nirav Tolia of Nextdoor. Nirav, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I want to mention that one of my friends, he actually uses Nextdoor um, on a neighborhood pretty close to me, and they located their dog through your app. So, so to the listeners out there, this app has been a tremendous way to find belongings along with just communicate with your neighbors. So... Yeah, it's I just great. To, to plug it's that. great to hear that. And you know, as as all of the founders or want to be founders out there that are listening, um, it never gets old when you hear that someone has used your product. And that's the kind of rush that I think only a founder knows what it feels like because you mm-hmm. slave over these things and and you put so much of yourself into them. And if you're really lucky. Uh, they turn into something. They turn into For something sure. that's bigger than you. And many other people have their piece of of that thing, whether as a consumer, as a customer, as an investor, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so every time someone tells me that they know of Nextdoor, they've used Nextdoor, uh, it's it's an incredible compliment and blessing. I'm sure, totally. So I want to start out with your upbringing. So Nirav, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I am the son of two Indian immigrants who were educated in India as physicians and then came over to this great country really to pursue the American dream with something like $100 in their pockets and their education and hmm. and a lot of optimism and, and belief in this country. And they originally settled in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I was born in Philadelphia, which is uh, very close to Cherry Hill and happened to be the hospital where my father was working. And when I was just a couple of years uh, old, they decided to move to a very unconventional place, which ended up being where I spent my entire childhood, and that is Odessa, Texas, which is a relatively small town in West Texas. It's equidistant between El Paso, which is one of the western tips of Texas, and Dallas, which is one of the most well-known cities in -hmm. Texas. So Odessa is right in the middle. But just because I mentioned El Paso and Dallas doesn't mean that Odessa is close to them. In fact, it's 300 miles plus <laughs> from either <laughs> of them. So Odessa is pretty far from a big city. It's well known for football. If you've heard of the, the book or the movie or the TV series, Friday Night Lights, yeah. that was based on my high school, Odessa Permian High School. Wow. Uh, it's known for oil and some boom and bust cycles in oil and gas that strangely are very familiar Uh, to the boom and bust cycles in Silicon Valley that we've seen Mm -hmm. over the last few decades. Uh, And also the Bush family is from Odessa Midland. Odessa and Midland are twin cities. And so that's where I grew up. And, you know, I give a lot of credit to Odessa and my parents and growing up in this really stable, loving uh, slice of Americana. I give Mm -hmm. a lot of credit to them and to the town and to the people in the town because that's where I discovered my love for and my belief in community. And that has really been the North Star for my entire personal and professional pursuits. Uh, Personal, I just love creating community. I love being part of communities. Mm -hmm. And on the professional side, 
pretty much everything I've done as a as an internet entrepreneur is in the area of user generated content and online community. And so even though it sounds a little strange because Odessa, Texas may not be on the tip of everyone's tongues, <laughs> uh, it was a great place for us to grow up and um, I'll always be grateful. Yeah, it sound, sounds like an amazing experience growing up. So did you have an entrepreneurship mindset growing up? Did you ever sell anything or start any other businesses? You know, when you're the son of two physicians and, and there's this old joke that if you're the son of Indian immigrants, you can only be a doctor or an engineer. Mm. And I, I think my parents were more open-minded than that, particularly because the type of medicine they were practicing was entrepreneurial. They had their own oh. private practices. They had to establish their offices and hire their staffs. And I remember my dad designing his logo, you know, which is something you don't think of a, of a surgeon doing, but yeah. it is one of those moments as a founder that is sort of interesting because you're seeing the visual manifestation of your idea start to emerge. And so they were entrepreneurial, but to be honest, I grew up thinking that I would be a physician like my parents. And uh, it wasn't that they were forcing me to do that or yeah. that they had defined that as the only path. I saw in my parents' lives uh, an incredible set of benefits. I mean, medicine for them was incredibly fulfilling because you are literally healing people. Sure. It was it was lucrative. Uh, it allowed us to live a great life, uh, and the respect that my parents had in the community because of the work they did is something that I saw on a daily basis, particularly in a small town like Odessa. So um, I was more entrepreneurial than I thought. It was more implicit than explicit. I remember mm -hmm. having car washes and being pretty good at selling things when we did fundraisers for various school organizations, but. Certainly, I never envisioned that my career would ultimately be starting companies, working in technology, or even being a business person. Yeah. So I, st I saw that you went on to study at Stanford University. And did you, so you didn't even pursue uh, the doctor side of this then. What, what did you study at Stanford? Well, I, I was a pre-med. So okay. it, was, it was still part of, of my plan. But, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that to have success in life, you need a lot of luck and you need sure. a lot of, uh, of breaks that you get, opportunities that just almost appear in front of you. And being born to my parents was certainly the biggest of those opportunities for me. Growing up in Odessa was another one. And, and frankly, being able to study at Stanford was a huge one because it yeah. got me out on the West Coast. It uh, got me into a place where I was surrounded by brilliant people that were very inspiring, uh, that, that encouraged and inspired me to be one of those people. Uh, mm -hmm. And obviously Stanford is in the heart of Silicon Valley. And so um, as a pre-med there, I realized uh, that I wasn't the most talented pre-med or even a talented pre-med at all <laughs> while I was going through school. Uh, but I continued to do entrepreneurial things. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I was lucky enough to do, another one of those serendipitous opportunities, I joined an all-male acapella group. Acapella groups in colleges are, uh, you either love them or you think they're really annoying. You know, they're, they're yeah. the groups of guys or gals or guys and gals that go around singing fight songs and, <laughs> and represent the university at times. And um, I just fell in love with the Stanford Fleet Street Singers. That was my group. And I loved it so much. And I loved it more than being a pre-med, frankly. And yeah. one of the years I was in the group, I had the opportunity to be the business manager. And I didn't know anything about business, but that didn't stop me because 
no one in the group wanted to be a business manager. They were all very talented musicians. Mm -hmm. and, and yet I took it on. And that was probably the moment where I started to feel like, you know, I really enjoy this. I enjoy sitting back and thinking about how to put a campaign together, how yeah. to market an offering, how to think about pricing. And I'm using terms that I didn't even really understand because I had no traditional background or education in business, but I was doing all the things that entrepreneurs do. I was hustling. I was working hard. I was driven by passion. Uh, and that was when I, I probably on the inside, at least started to wake up as to uh, what was my passion. And I have always believed that if you're lucky enough to ultimately have a vocation, uh, that feels like something that you would do without getting paid. Well, yeah. that's the ultimate, that is the ultimate break. And sure. I was the business manager of the fleet street singers and working many, many hours every single week, uh, with the rest of the group on that. And we weren't getting paid a penny, but we would have done mm -hmm. it for free. In fact, we, we would have paid someone to be able to do it. And so yeah. that's a, that's a big wake up call. I think particularly if you don't feel fulfilled, in your other pursuits. And, and then I got, you know, sort of maybe the break of all breaks, which is there was a little company at the time called Yahoo. Yeah. And, uh, it had, it had been preparing to go public. It was in the news. Not that many people knew about it because not that many people knew about the internet. It was still very nascent and it was yeah. still just starting to emerge. And I was really, really lucky. Uh, to get a job there as one wow. of the first hundred employees, and wow. that was like winning a lottery. Yeah, and when, I was when, lucky when enough. Was this? this was 1996. Okay. And um, Yahoo had just gone public, and wow. there were a handful of internet companies. Yahoo and Netscape were I were I would say the the top of of the heap. They were the ones that consumers loved. Netscape is the browser. Yahoo is the website that they accessed with that browser. And it was a magical place where the growth rates were just unbelievable. And you could walk down University Avenue in Palo Alto, where Stanford is, wearing a Yahoo t-shirt and you would be mocked. People just loved the company because they loved the product. Yeah. And that had a very, very strong impact on me. This idea that, wow, business can be about dreaming something up out of nothing and then creating sure. something that can be used by millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, and now billions of people, and they will love it. They will yeah. absolutely love it. And so that was a, just a remarkable, remarkable journey. And I was at Yahoo for three wonderful years, but I couldn't shake the feeling when I was at Yahoo that I was a lottery ticket winner. And I knew that if for some reason <laughs> uh, in the middle of the day, I had walked across the highway and been run over, I'm not even sure they would have noticed that I was gone at the company. I mean, I was just really wow. lucky to be there yeah. and, you know, right place, right time. And it sounds very presumptuous, but it actually was coming from a place of humility. I want to understand, I mean, what's my real worth? Mm -hmm. um, can I create my own Yahoo? I mean, it sounds outrageous even when I say it now, yeah. uh, 20 years later, but that's sort of what I was thinking. And, and it's not that I didn't think it would be impossible. I knew it would be impossible. But Yahoo put me in a position where I could shoot for the stars because that was part of the culture there. For and sure. so uh, I decided to go for it. So after three years in 1999, I started my first company with four other uh, young Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. Uh, and that was really the beginning. So 
yeah, what was that company that you founded outside of Yahoo then, the first one? It was a company called Epinions, which okay. when I say it, a lot of people cringe, and I cringe <laughs> a little bit because it's a very dot-com boom era name, anything with an E in front of it, but electronic yeah. opinions. And the idea was that everybody is an expert at something. We mm -hmm. have this incredible unifying platform called the internet. Can we find a way to harness all of that expertise in one place where people can come to learn about things and to read online reviews and to make better buying decisions and to make better decisions in general by yeah. harnessing sort of the hive mind. And, and it was at the time a very, very novel concept not only this concept that users could write reviews, but I think one of the pioneering innovations of opinions was that users would then rate the quality and usefulness of those mm. reviews. And so there was a kind of recursive so that the great content in theory should rise to the top and the content that was less useful might sink to the bottom. Wow, and so yeah. very, very uh, ambitious and, and you know very exciting but at its root about online community, about making information available, about creating uh, a service that would take people's passion and convert that to something that could be really helpful and useful to others. For sure. Were you doing any of the coding for, for this application or? No, 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 no. I, I probably should have made that clear. Um, oh, you're good. I, I have never been uh, on the technical side Okay. I, I love engineers and I have the utmost respect for them. I sort of hate it when people refer to me or even when I think of myself as a business guy. I yeah. want to think of myself much more as an entrepreneur. For sure. I think I probably can't call myself a technologist because I, I don't have that training. But no, we had some unbelievable engineers uh, throughout the time in opinions and um, I was a product guy. That's the okay. way that I would think of myself and, and I, I would dream about the product and I would obsess mm -hmm. about the product and and that's really hopefully where I could add value for sure so moving on to next door I, I saw that you also founded some other great technology companies leading up to next door what inspired you to create next door and what was kind of the passion moving on to this concept you know, it's sort of funny that you said um, created some great companies because Nextdoor yeah. was created out of failure. And oh, wow. um, I, I always chuckle to myself uh, when I listen to these podcasts. It's a great honor to be on them. But I think every entrepreneur, successful or unsuccessful, knows that there are so many more failures than there are successes. And yeah, sure. if you're really lucky, the last thing on your report card is a success, not a failure. <laughs> because yeah, to some yeah, extent, sure. you have to fail dozens if not hundreds of times to get to that one success and so opinions became uh, a company called shopping.com after many ups and downs near-death experiences uh, shopping.com was lucky enough to go public in 2004 and then purchased in 2005 uh, mm. and um, along the way i took some time off and then i came back to silicon valley in 2007 and became an entrepreneur in residence at benchmark one of the earliest investors, really the earliest investor in opinions and also the earliest investor in Nextdoor. And that was okay. a great opportunity to work with someone, Sarah Leary, who has been a business partner and great friend of mine for 20 years. And we wanted to come up with a great idea and build a great company. We had done it 
together at Opinion. She was employee 15 or so, and we'd worked together for five years on that. And we wanted to see if we could take a lot of the learnings and uh, a lot of the mistakes that, that had left marks on our backs and do something mm -hmm. better. And so from Benchmark, uh, as entrepreneurs in residence, we started a company called Fanbase, which was again an online community play. It was an attempt to create a more community-centric, user-centric version of ESPN. Okay. And it, fa and it actually failed miserably. And so I, mm. I, I sort of laugh when you say that I created some successful companies <laughs> prior to Nextdoor. I think Opinions was very lucky, shopping.com, uh, and then Fanbase was actually a failure. But a lot of times, failures can serve as the kind of beginning of a phoenix moment right where Absolutely. you rise from the ashes and we're very very fortunate because i think that's ultimately what happened with next door after about two years of working on fan base we came to one of the most difficult conclusions an entrepreneur can come to and that is the conclusion that what you're doing is not going to work and yeah. at that point many different things go through your mind and the thing that probably went through the minds of, of me and, and my two co-founders of Fanbase was, look, the money is really embarrassing that we spent a couple million dollars and we raised 10 million plus and we're going to have to give it back. And, you know, that's embarrassing. But yeah. our greatest asset is time. Mm -hmm. And if we don't feel like we're spending our time on the right idea, and the right idea means one that you believe in and one that could be successful and one that you feel has a very long ramp and you have a vision for that ramp. Yeah. If you don't have those things, it's just not worth it. All the sacrifices are not worth it. And so we were preparing to give the money back to our investors and, and to take a little bit of time and regroup and who knows what would happen after that. But uh, we gave it one more shot. It was the summer of 2010. We okay. had 12 employees and a number of them decided to leave and we were left with seven co-founders of whatever we were going to do next. Wow. And we had these funny little sessions. We called them billion dollar idea meetings uh, every day at 10 or 11 o'clock. I think maybe they were at 11 so that we could finish at 12 and then go have the highlight of the day, which was walking to lunch somewhere in San Francisco. <laughs> And, you know, it was meant to be tongue in cheek. I mean, no one can come up with a billion dollar idea on the spot. But yeah. it put us in a position where we realized, first, let's focus on who. And that mm -hmm. was the team. And that was who we were working with. And that was us together. And then let's focus on what. And let's make sure when we're focusing on what, that we don't forget why. Why is, yeah. why is this something that the world needs? Why is this something that matters to us? Why is this something that we can do better than anyone else? And in that summer, after many, 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 many bad ideas were discussed and in some cases vetted and tested, we were lucky enough to come up with this idea for a neighborhood social network. And that was the creation of Nextdoor. That's amazing. So I'm, I'm very fascinated by this concept. So how did you reach new users? Such Because this app you have to have multiple people people using it for it to actually work because one user in a region can't just use it for a communication app. So how did you reach some of your first users? You know, Nextdoor is a social media service uh, like the very well-known ones, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, etc. But yeah. it has a number of very, very fundamental differences. And, and right at the top is it's not viral in the same way that those other platforms are, because as you just said, 
Uh, Nextdoor is really hundreds of thousands of micro networks that are walled off from each other. It's neighborhood networks. And so if you live in a particular neighborhood, you don't really care about the neighborhood across town, much less the neighborhood in a different state or a different country. And so Nextdoor has got 300,000 now of these individual neighborhoods. And to some extent, we had to hand crank every single one of those to get started, to reach critical mass, to uh, reach a tipping point where it became useful because it's a big chicken in the egg problem with user-generated content, which is if you don't have people, they can't create content. If you don't have content, people don't want to show up. And so how do you how do you actually solve that? In our yeah. case, we rolled things the old-fashioned way. We did it uh, with our hands. And so the first, I would say, 20, 30, 40 neighborhoods were all started by friends of ours or family members of ours. And we would be on the phone with them, helping them draw neighborhood boundaries. And we would be asking them who they knew that lived in the neighborhood or who they might know that was a neighborhood connector. And so it was, I think this very underrated insight that I found to be critical. And, you know, I can give it up because people hear it and they sort of nod their heads, but doing it is much harder. And that insight is sometimes to build scalable systems and to generate massive scale, you have to start by doing the most unscalable things. Mm-hmm. And so in a, in a set of words, we did a lot of unscalable things. I remember driving around the Bay Area, in some cases with a giant computer monitor in the back seat with my co-founders, and mm-hmm. we would grab the computer monitor, we'd go inside someone's living room, typically someone who was running in HOA, a homeowners association, or someone who was deeply embedded in the neighborhood, and we would mm-hmm. show them our prototype and we would pitch them on doing this thing. And That's amazing. we didn't even have the name next door at that wow. point. And it was those early users that not only got us started, but they gave us the conviction that we were onto something. Because yeah. after the failure of fan base, we didn't feel like we were smarter than anyone else. We didn't feel like we could predict the future. We felt like we had to take a much more humble and you know, I would say empirical approach. We had to do things and very, very closely study their impact and then use that feedback Mm -hmm. to inform our next step. Mm -hmm. And so it was really one step at a time. You know, there's a a quote, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. It's a little bit of a pithy quote, but it's so true with Nextdoor. I mean, Nextdoor is not put a couple of reagents inside a test tube swirl it around and boom you suddenly have something incredible like instagram that comes out on the other end right which was one of the fastest growing apps from the very beginning of being in the app store next door is very slow and steady it's very um do it manually it's it's on the down low i mean in many cases because we have a private set of neighborhood networks. Next door is private. You can't get in until you verify your address. We were asking people to join a service that they couldn't even see, right? In most cases, yeah. people would join because their neighbors would invite them, which is ultimately the strongest endorsement you can have. But in many cases, we were asking people to join this thing. And they went to nextdoor.com and they couldn't see any real content because it was all behind a, a privacy wall. So yeah. I think if we had thought about those things in a more intellectual or high-minded way at the beginning, we would have certainly convinced ourselves that it was impossible and that Mm -hmm. we wouldn't be able to do it. And gosh, it's not worth the effort. And we would have rationalized the thousand reasons why it would fail. But we were instead 
extremely convicted that neighbors are an absolutely essential community for people and that that community was not being served by any other service. And we took that conviction and then we took an execution approach that depended on step by step versus getting overwhelmed by the entire problem all at once. And we just got really lucky. That's amazing. So the development and leading up to Nextdoor gaining traction, what was your plan to monetize the app then? So how were you guys beginning to make money towards the app? Well, first of all, we did not make money. Nextdoor has now been around for 10 years and and we, we did not make money. And I guess in some ways we still haven't made money because that's definitionally being profitable, but we didn't start generating revenue until yeah. about six years in. And the main reason for that was not because we didn't know how to do it or because we didn't believe in doing it or because, you know, we were 18 year olds and we had no interest in doing it. (laughs) It was actually part of a very deliberate strategy. And that deliberate strategy was it's going to be so difficult for us to build the scale of platform that we need. Let's not sort of bisect that effort by trying to do something else that's extremely hard, like figure out how to monetize locally, which is another hugely difficult kind of challenge. And so at the same time, we had this deep conviction that small businesses and large businesses that operate locally are the lifeblood of a neighborhood. And Mm -hmm. with the erosion and really now the disappearance of the yellow pages and the lack of local television watching, and we don't even really listen to the radio stations that we used to listen to anymore. We felt there would absolutely be an opportunity to help those great businesses ultimately reach their customers, whether they were their loyal customers who lived in the neighborhood or people who moved into the neighborhood. Uh, and so we had really deep conviction that we would be able to eventually monetize. And yet we had a lot of patience because like the conviction that we could build hundreds of thousands of individuals neighborhoods we didn't know exactly how and we knew that we would have to try lots of different things the same way we felt very strongly that we could monetize the platform effectively primarily through local advertising or sponsorships or some relationship with local businesses but we knew that getting that right would require lots of testing and lots of exploring and when we did it we wanted to feel like we were in a really good place on the growth side. And so we sort of think of it as growth engagement revenue. Mm -hmm. The first thing that you really need to spend a lot of time on is growth. If you can get the growth wheel going, well, you gotta make sure people stick around and that's engagement. Uh, If you have a growing system that has engagement, meaning the people are staying there and they're inviting other people, then you have something where you can move on and start to think about revenue. Um, At the same time, from the very beginning of Nextdoor, we saw content created by neighbors that was transactional and commercial. And so it wasn't like we were afraid that, oh, we've created MySpace and people are gonna be offended if we put advertisements in it. We knew that the number one use case on Nextdoor was asking for a trusty plumber or Mm -hmm. getting a recommendation for a babysitter. That was the number one thing people were doing on the platform. And we didn't want to, I would say, distract ourselves by saying, okay, we know what the golden goose is. It's local advertising. How are we gonna do it? Instead, we want to say, let's make this a really incredible experience for our members. And if we do that, then we'll move on to this next big challenge. For sure. 
So how would you assure security such as false postings or lack of credibility between users? I, I heard you say that they had to verify their address, but say that someone verifies their address and they're maybe like not meeting the community, community guidelines. That's a great question. And I think, you know, our first challenge was uh, when we started the company, there weren't many services that focused on privacy. In fact, if you remember back then, people didn't even use their real names on the Internet. You had yeah. Lonely Girl 13 and you know, <laughs> Cowboys Fan 12 and stuff like that, right? For and sure. so we started from the very beginning, and I think this is one of the really special things about Nextdoor. It's in our DNA to care deeply about our members' privacy because we've cared from day one. And the examples are we didn't ever show neighborhood content publicly. We never mm -hmm. did. It wasn't indexed by Google. It wasn't accessible through any kind of social media sharing we felt it was absolutely essential particularly in those early days to ensure that people knew that their conversations were not going to be shared publicly the second mm. thing is we required people to give us their actual address their physical address and mm. once they gave us their physical address and their real name we would ask them to verify it. and in many cases the way the verification worked is that we would send a good old-fashioned postcard to the member with a with an invite code and you can imagine i mean we we internet entrepreneurs often use this word friction yeah. remove the friction get rid of the friction it's the friction that's holding you back well my god we we had <laughs> friction in our in our strategic directives right because we we yeah. had it all over the place and it's not that we liked friction it's that we felt that there was a a very very strong benefit to doing things in a way that focused first on building trust and that was sort of our whole modality. Now, the second part of your question, which is, you know, you can't really fake your address on Nextdoor. I mean, I'm sure you can, but it's very difficult to be verified. Totally. But the second part of your question was, okay, what if you actually do live at the place, but you are posting either false or inflammatory content? Yeah. And that's a challenge that I think we all know is, is present on all social networks. Absolutely. Some of them much, much, much worse than others. I think in that area, Nextdoor has been quite lucky because if most of the posts are about trusty babysitters and handymen and plumbers, there's not a lot of emotion and, and sort of agita that goes into those kinds of conversations. They're very utilitarian and that way we're a lot more like LinkedIn and yeah. we are Facebook, for example, but when, there are TIFFs, and of course there can be because Nextdoor is now at scale. 99% of American neighborhoods and a dozen countries around the world rely on Nextdoor every single day. Wow. And so you're going to get a couple of bad apples, and it's always going to be that the online forums are a reflection of what's going on in the real world, in the offline world. And For so sure. if you have a bad neighbor or you have a nosy neighbor or you have a nasty neighbor, we hope that that's the kind of person who – won't want to be on next door to begin with because of its strong community ethos but if the person is on next door and decides to act out of line there are many ways that other neighbors can report and i think we probably start with things like a kindness reminder so there's a a, a really neat feature that the team at next door created this year called a kindness reminder which i think will be particularly useful leading up to the election, which is a divisive topic to begin with. But the kindness yeah. reminder just helps people stop and remember that they're talking with other people that are their neighbors, that have the best intentions, and that they should just take a deep breath versus launching into a tirade that in most cases they will come to regret. 
And so I think that the first thing is we try to do everything we can to filter out those kinds of things at the source. And we do that through verification. We do that through privacy. We do it through our community guidelines. If there are a few cases that still slip through, which invariably there will be because we're serving tens of millions of members, you know, at any given time. Yeah. But when those slip through, the best the best solution is for a neighbor to sort of just tap you on the back virtually and say, hey, I don't think you really meant to do that. Remember the kindness reminder you saw. Uh, maybe you want to restate that. Uh, and that's something that ultimately we think is a lot more durable long term. And, and it's not easy to do, of course, but it's one of the things that I think makes Nextdoor special. For sure. So looking at Nextdoor today, for new users logging on, what does the application or signing up process look like once they log on to the app? Well, you have to put in your address first because we don't know what neighborhood you're in unless you give us your address. And so if you okay. join Nextdoor, the first thing you're going to do is put in your address and we're going to tell you, okay, this is your neighborhood. And mm -hmm. the interesting thing about the neighborhoods, which have discrete geographical boundaries and specific names, for example, uh, my neighborhood in San Francisco is called Outer Broadway. And it's okay. a particular set of streets. Uh, we will tell you that's your neighborhood. And interestingly, people say, well, how do you know that it's called Outer Broadway? How do you know those are the boundaries? <laughs> and we sort of chuckle and say, actually, we don't. We relied on our early users in every neighborhood, for the most part, to help us name these neighborhoods and to draw the boundaries, uh, which was another interesting thing we did because we realized pretty quickly there was no omniscient voice or reference source for neighborhood names and boundaries. And so we had to once again rely on the community, but sure. you see the next door neighborhood that you reside in, and mm -hmm. then uh, you have to verify, and you can do that a number of different ways. We have instantaneous verification methods now, as well as the postcard. And when you get in, you see something that looks a lot like other social networks. You see a newsfeed, you see neighbors who are posting, there are different categories. Uh, whether it's safety or recommendations or pets you know you talked about the the lost dog i mean we're mm -hmm. thrilled that people can find lost pets i mean beyond yeah. lost kids i can't imagine what gives people uh, more fear than losing their pet and so sure. if you can help someone get their pet back boy that's an amazing feeling and so you get into the app you know how to use it because at this point everyone is on social networks and you just start to realize that it's a little different because it's about the real world. It's not about the virtual world. Uh, it's about your physical space. It's not about a kind of virtual palette. And mm -hmm. it's about, at the end of the day, neighbors working together to make their neighborhood safer, stronger, happier. I love that concept. Well, I, I asked my guests at the end of each episode this last piece. So, Nariv, if you could share a piece of advice to an inspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regrets, what would that be? I have many, 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 many regrets. And I tend yeah. to be uh, an optimistic person and, and see the glasses half full. So I'm gonna focus on the tip. And it's okay. a tip that I said earlier, uh, which is there was a great mentor uh, that I was really lucky to work with early in my career named Bill Campbell, who many people refer to as the great coach of Silicon Valley. And he used to always tell me who then what? And it was this idea that many times we get really caught up in what we're doing, the problem we're trying to solve, the strategy we want to put into place, the implementation that we think is the right implementation. Mm -hmm. And we forget that who is working on those things, who is 
is uh, intended to benefit from those things. The who is the part that ultimately makes all the difference. And so in my career, whether it's going all the way back to the car washes in Odessa or all the great stuff that happened at Nextdoor, I would say the, the number one enabler by far was the people I was around, mm-hmm. whether it was my co-founders or my colleagues or uh, the people in the industry that helped or investors or mentors. And so my advice said succinctly is first get the right people on the bus with you mm-hmm. and then figure out where you're going to go. And and after you figured out who's on the bus and where you're going to go, you can start to work together on how you're going to get there. But yeah. I found a lot of entrepreneurs focus first on the what, which makes sense because entrepreneurs want to solve problems. But I would encourage them to spend as much time as possible making sure that you're with people that you like, trust, and respect. Because ultimately, those are the people that will make the highs feel so much higher and will make the many lows not feel nearly as low. For sure. Nirav, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Nextdoor at nextdoor.com. Thanks for having me, Cameron. A pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.